What's up, all you big stinky buttholes? <laughs> is buttholes worse than anus? I never knew. I could never tell which word is worse. It's Toby. I'm doing the intro. Millions of people asking for me to do it again. Uh, they Apparently, they're tired of Matt, and I can understand why. <laughs> so, we're glad to have you. I got a couple of announcements. One, Devin and I are doing Songs and Stories Tour. Uh, there is a lot of shows, so go to emorymusic.com. You can check that out. Get your tickets. They're selling fast, and I do mean quickly. Also... There's a site we run here, Matt and I. We own it. It's called marriagesupply.com. And it is a place for sex products, sex toys, all those things that you want to get to spice up your life. Uh, and I created a code to celebrate October because I love Oktoberfest and I love Halloween. Uh, use uh, promo code October and you get 10% off. Go there. Uh, time's running out. You want to go ahead and get all the stuff you need to spice up your October, if you know what I mean, and I think you do. <laughs> all right. Today's show is sponsored by Brook Linen. These are the best sheets I've ever slept on, I promise you. Get 15% off and free shipping when you use promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. Let's do this. Oh, hell yeah, God showed up. Give a shit what I put in my body. You don't ever f- talk to me that way. <laughs> so if you've never done oral, then you're extra virgin. No, girl, it's my pleasure. I showed my dad my penis when I was 25 years old. You don't get more honest than that. Three, two, one. Remix. Where you going with that big old ass? I don't really wanna know, but I gotta ask. Where you going with that big old ass? Where you going? I really wanna know, but I gotta ask. I love that one. Where you going with that big old ass? I don't really wanna know, but I gotta ask. That's good. You like that, don't you? It's the Bad Christian Podcast. You gotta credit the person that makes the beat. You got it? We'll catch it later, but you got to get that into praise. Matt Moore, that was awesome. Thank you for doing that uh, with my song. Yeah, so those are our uh, – I, I ride around in my car or I'm walking around the house, and I just get these thoughts and songs and raps in my head, and I just have to get them out. And so some some of the clubbers and people out there are putting some beats to them, and that one's pretty good. Okay, okay so that that one – I mean, that is along the lines of something that took you how long to do. Like, you came up with that line in less than a second. It just popped in your head, and you said – a line, and then you, somebody else put the music to it, and now it, tens of thousands of people are enjoying it, and it's that's so amazing. But yeah, that's what's so fun. So uh, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll let clubbers have first dibs at it. But uh, we're moving forward on the whole situation here. Of ma- I mean, we've had a focus. I have personally, and I think everybody else too. The more you get older, realize that that doing creative stuff is its own value and then tends to work out anyway. And so we've been working harder on just putting, I mean, I've been trying to focus all my time on less businessy stuff and more on editing and creative and questions and writing and interview skills and, and, and songs and doing music all the time on Emory land. And uh, it, it, we're even doing that a, a bit more. We're doing those Christmas songs too now. So we're doing this whole Christmas album and we're doing Christmas songs for other people. So you've been doing that with your time too. Right. Yes, Matt, you're right. I've been writing songs. So we we came up with this idea last year. Uh, we just thought 
what would it be like? Uh, we know we get so many fans and people ask us here and there, would you ever write a song for me? You know, we're getting married or it'd be awesome for a gift for Christmas. And we're like, okay, let's just do it. So there's only limited spots because it, you know, it does take, even though I'm really, really fast and really <laughs> great at writing these songs, there's only so much time. Uh, but you can go to the emorymusic.com, go to the store right at the top. And there's three different options there. And we will write a song for you. And you can give it as a gift. You can give it to yourself. Uh, we can do a, a couple of different things. One, we'll just write the whole song for you on, on acoustic guitar. Devin, I'll sing it. Um, two, we'll, we could also mix and master it for you. And three, we could even do like kind of a full production recording for you. Yeah. You can go check it out. We already got some of those signed up too, which is great. I mean, because it's... It's like a low pressure situation. Yep. But it's going to be good and it's fun. First of all, we're good at writing songs and arranging them and recording them. Yeah. And it's fun and it's creative. And it turns out that, you know, there's some money there that's worth, do- you know, the money's just enough to take the friction out of it. It's worth it. It's so it's fun. It's so fun writing these songs because, okay, for me, in Emory, when I write a song, so much of Toby's identity is wrapped up in it. But when I'm writing this song, like I wrote a song yesterday. Uh, a lady's buying this for her fiance, and they might even play this song as their first dance. And I'm like, ooh, okay. This is, yeah. you know, it's got to sound good. What? And, I, and so what I did was stand in my room with my guitar and kind of move left and right like I was dancing, you know, what, what mm-hmm. it looked like. And I just came up with this song. I'm like, oh, they're going to love this. And I, I just feel so good about it. Like, this sounds funny. I know there's, there's a couple of lines that I wrote that are just going to make them cry. They're going to look at each mm-hmm. other when that line hits, and they're going to cry. And, all, and I'm just so – it's like it feels so good. Like I'm writing with a, a purpose outside of myself. Yes, it's not, to, it's not just to crap out something or monetize your thing. It's not that. It's when you write an Emory song, it's – Oh, it's got to land. It's it's important, and it's got to land, and it's got to do everything for everybody. It feels that way in a way. But yes. if you're creating something that is meaningful to one person, like a joke, for instance, if I make a joke to a person with context, I it it will matter. It will be funny. It wouldn't work for anybody else, but it will be meaningful and funny to this person in this moment. Yes, that is the fun stuff in life. And so to write one song to make these two people who you know a little bit enough about them and the situation, how fun is that? Because you, it's the goal is to make those two people cry, and you can achieve that goal. I know. That's a really cool way to use creativity, and it's meaningful, and it's it's not mass. It's the opposite of commercial pop bullshit that the computers are going to be able to one day do. It's, right. That's awesome. And and I'm getting I'm I'm able to write lyrics outside of my personal experience, mm-hmm. which is really freeing too. And so that's what's really neat. Like these are I mean, I, I know I'm tooting my own horn. These are great songs. They really <laughs> are. Like I mean, some of the the chord progressions, the lyrics, the melodies. I mean, we we might use parts of these songs in in Emory songs in the future or something like that. It's a great writing experience. It's really mm-hmm. fun and it makes a great present. So like we said, go over to emorymusic.com, get your present now. I mean, it's a in personalized the store song from your Emory favorite Music. band on earth. Is a is a pretty good gift to give somebody or give yourself for the for the Christmas holidays. But moving on, Matt, I've been writing music and, and I know you've been working on music. We got a another speaking of Emory, we got that next installment coming out. You've been working mm-hmm. on that too. Right? Oh yeah, Christmas songs is so much fun. I, I've been I've done this so wrong, and ev- almost everybody in the music business that is successful does this wrong. It's like a hoarding thing. You go, oh, these Emory songs, when we write them and put them on the album, they're so important. They're going to make or break our career. They're worth tens of thousands of dollars each, and they have, they're so important. So I, I had to be so careful with them and stuff in a way that you don't want to just write songs 
unless it's for that and you put all your effort into it, but it's wrong. It's, that's hoarding. That's creativity hoarding. You're way better off to write songs every day and uh, plan on not using them or somebody else taking them or not finishing them all the way because you're in a more creative mode and you just build the skills and then you have more creativity, not less. It's not a finite resource how much you can create. You don't run out of it. You just get better at it and make more better. It's crazy to think the opposite way. I'm so disappointed that I didn't understand that for a long enough time. Anyway, I'm, I'm enjoying the output part of life at the moment. I'm working with Dan Koch on his podcast, and I help him just, I don't know what you would call the role, just development. but his Consultations? His, yeah, and it's just going really good. The show keeps growing, and he's doing good research and all that stuff. But I was listening to his last episode yesterday, and he had a guy on there that's like a counselor for marriage and family that, that, that just talks people through that are, uh, you know, changing their faith, basically. And they stumbled into this thing. I don't remember if he said it or Dan said it, but it hit me <clears throat> in a way that I thought was it was pretty profound because they said, I think Dan said that they were talking about inerrancy and how important that is and how difficult it is to to leave that or to let that go. That seems to be one of the main hangups that people cross the threshold of that, you know what I mean? Like there's that once you let go of inerrancy, things are going to be different, but it seems, and there's a lot of pressure to do that. And some people do, some people don't. That's but, a huge hurdle. Right. But we're in the middle of this like thing happening culturally where it's not just me. It's not just bad Christian listeners, but people are changing their faith and the way they apply their faith and spirituality. Yeah. And Dan said something like millions of people right now, there are, it's, it's gotta be true. There are millions of people who are like, married who are Christians who are their faith is changing in a direction right millions yeah yeah yes I agree with I mean something like that order of magnitude and it, that I didn't thought about it in that in those terms but it for a lot of those it's not for many of those it's not equal one person is like going a different direction than the other or willing to go farther or one person, one of the spouses wants to more stay like crossing the inerrancy line, for instance, he said, that's, it's just not very good. If one spouse is in that one's not, but on the other hand, you're just kind of crossing a threshold to some degree. So you, you've got all these couples where one spouse is on some other side of a thing. So there's a lot of friction yes. and a lot of mer- and tens and thousands, tens of thousands of these marriages in a way that wasn't a decade ago now have a schism in it. And I was like, oh yeah. And it's also true politically now that you said, when he said that, I was thinking about my parents. So like basically after the 2016 election and stuff, I, I noticed my parents were like, wait a minute, they're not exactly aligned anymore. It, like you can see that they weren't in a way. Like, they would fight about Trump or something. Like my dad's not a big Trump supporter. My mom is just a South Carolina and that's after lady. decades of marriage. That, yeah. And that, I've that never, rift started happening. Yeah, and you're like, oh, and, you know, and, and stuff like that. So I'm like, I, and so politically and religiously and in a lot of ways, I mean, I don't know what that looks like, but it just started, like, to be that way. And so it must be beyond just religion. And, and you know, luckily for my mom, she died because she had to deal with Trump and my dad. <laughs> That's you know, luckily good. for her. Yeah, luckily for her. She, and I'm, I'm saying that as a joke, but she, she, it might be true. I mean, it might just be true. Like she was not happy about the the way things were headed. Like it was a great deal of stress for her 
And it was a stress in their marriage for the brief amount of time that it was like six months after Trump got elected before she died. But it wasn't, it was weird like that. So I'm thinking, why is that? What's First of all, I don't know what's going on with divorce rate or marriage or relationships or just the social fabric. It might is in somewhat of trouble with a rapid change going on. Yeah. And I, one of the re, one of the things that makes me think of is it's a, there must be a bubble of sorts here where because if it when things change all at once, it's like a bubble. So I'm thinking, tell me if it sounds crazy, that there's some kind of amount of hmm, I don't want this to sound like a reach, but. I'm wondering, is it possible that in decades past, there have not been enough, I've heard this enough times to speculate it, that a lot of women didn't feel free to have, like they didn't really have a choice as much as you would would have thought they did if, of what they were doing spiritually or politically. They're just kind of, do you know what I mean? They didn't have a choice? They felt like they had to go along to get oh. along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More than you would have, more than I th- understood was going on for, I don't know, yes. forever. Like, I just thought, well, what do you mean? We just, we, this is what we do. This is what I do. This is what you do. I choose, you choose. But it's, I'm starting to be sensitive to the fact that I hear women's stories and they say stuff like, well, that's just, that's really all I could do in the culture. I mean, it's not just my husband, but the church and this person and my family. And there's all these reasons why you just, and that makes a ton of sense. Like, you just, Get along. You got to go along to get along. But if you had, if it was available to you to express these other thoughts and communities and digital and online, and, and plus with Christianity and the right wing people getting nuttier, it's like, and women being more liberated, be able to communicate like that. They, I think that's that's why things are changing so fast is because they, I guess, were holding things that we didn't know that they were holding. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was just to keep the peace or just to go along with whatever the system or the culture or yeah, the group. or And not in a totally fake way, just in a nudge way that adds up over time and creates maybe, a, a Maybe not even, it, not even totally realizing it. Like there's, there's tons of, uh, I think it was uh, uh, revisionist history or whatever. They were talking about just some of the racism back in the day. It's not that everybody really agreed that the bathroom should be separate, but they weren't going to say anything. Right. You know, because you'd cause a big hubbub and you just did. And so that that's a little bit that probably even speaks to the micro what a microaggression is. But, yes, you just, you know, it, it was just there. You just, well, it's going to be really hard yeah. to pick this moment in the grocery store to stand up for civil rights. <laughs> oh, no, I don't want to get out of bed. <laughs> That's how I feel every morning when I wake up and just laying in those perfect Brook linen sheets. My goodness, they are my favorite sheets I've ever owned in my life. And I'm just going to be honest, I never thought about sheets. I was just being a single dude and even a married dude. I just, Jess, we, we can't afford those expensive sheets. And who knows if they're any good. Now, Brook linen changed everything, changed the game. I can afford amazing Great sheets, the best sheets ever, better than any hotel, better than any house I slept in in the world. They are my favorite sheets. Seriously, I, I mean, this is such a cool company. They are making your home beautiful and uh, with their with their product. And also, you spend a third of your life in between the sheets. Don't you want to be insanely comfortable? I know that's what I wanted to do. These are luxury sheets. They have towels, bedding, and more without all that luxury markup. I'm telling you, they're just great. Sheets don't just feel great, but they look great too. And you can mix and match 
uh, over 20 plus colors and patterns. So my Brooklyn sheets are the most comfortable sheets I've slept on. I said that. I believe it. I'm telling you, you should too. And their towels have turned my bathroom into a spa. And it's just getting crazier and crazy. Brooklyn is doing it. It's making my life amazing. Uh, I couldn't recommend them more for friends, family, or treating yourself to the upgrade you deserve. So brooklinen.com is given an exclusive offer just for our listeners. Get 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. I said lifetime warranty. The only way to get the 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code BADCHRISTIAN at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code BADCHRISTIAN. Brooklinen, these are the best sheets ever. Yeah, so women have just had a lot of pressure on them to do certain things. And so, Reva, does that sound at all, is that is that way off far going farther with that? No, you're right on so far. Okay, good. Um, I'm, I'm a little unclear on the bubble, though. The bubble is the, the fact that once, bubble. well, bubbles pop. So the idea being there's this problem that's unknown and unseen kind and then it pops the quickly. Surface. Yeah. And then when it happens, okay. now that you can join all these Facebook groups and do this and the other side's getting weirder and people in mass are changing their religion and politics. It's like, okay, now, and women have become incredibly empowered in the last five years. Yeah. So not enough, whatever, but come on, we're really making some movement here. I find that very positive. I noticed it a lot. I had a daughter five and six years ago. So I've just kind of, I don't know. I've just been paying attention to the space a little bit. And Bridget and I are farther off than we were on some things, but that's okay. I mean, it's just, oh yeah. I mean, it. we don't have to be locked into this religious system. She's kind of thinks different things and I think different things and it's more free. So I think that's very positive in a general yeah. way. It may have some really bad effects in uh, societally or to the marriage institution or what. I have no idea. We don't know, but it's happening and it's happening kind of fast. So what is the problem there or the interesting thing is that's just a very little marker though, because if that's true, that must be true even wider. So now I'm starting to just think, and I've noticed this lately too, there are so many women that are just, they're obviously very powerful, but they've, there's a lot of really powerful women that have not been able to, I don't know, preach or be the lead of the family or have a career because of these simple forces all combined. So you have these extremely powerful women that are now just running households or something. And that's kind of a shame. So if, if things are changing fast, the thing to be on the lookout for is what is this generation and more so the next, what will these extremely powerful women that have been kind of domestic going to do <laughs> good or bad? I mean, like what will they choose to do? They're going to get more choice in what to do. They have it. Yeah. It's already here and it's going to increase insane. And I keep thinking about like, oh my God, that woman's totally runs everything in this family and beyond, but from the sideline or from behind the man and all that, like all those women are going to go do shit now a, yeah. or a lot more. A lot of women already did. Of course, there's empowered people in the sixties and seventies, but now it's everybody. Though. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, you're going to see a lot there. So I, I, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Like, what do you think might happen? I mean, this a bit, it kind of, that's a, a wild thought. I never, I, I mean, I guess I have had thoughts like this before, like but here they come. May, what's, are what's you, so you're saying something like, well, obviously women have shown tons of skills 
and have had these skills and have grown these skills, run, running a fantasy CEO of a family, which I mean is, is way too far underrated of how hard that yeah. is. Also yeah, but- managing the husband and the money. And I mean, Jess has done so much stuff that I could never actually possibly do. Like, I mean, she, she works and does things that I actually can't do. And so you're saying that that is a, what is it going to look like yeah, when they finally it breaks free and yeah, there isn't, there isn't that anymore and then lots of women are in charge? Now, I don't know about it. I don't know. I'm not saying in charge. All I'm saying is, what are they going to do? No they more can pressure do, to like hold back and be quiet the, anymore. The pressures are yeah. being eliminated ra- rapidly. So the freedom for women is increasing rapidly. Yes. And the opportunity, I mean, not to mention the affirmative placement and incur like direct incur you know there's that part that's the dumb part of it where marvel makes goofy scenes in movies that are i mean that's the (laughs) beginnings of like getting the things rolling i mean i think that stuff's kind of goofy but it speaks to elementary in a way yeah yeah that's just a relatively immature thing but it's a signal of what is happening i think i'm starting to see it more that way or something like that so i i have a, a high curiosity about you know what what will happen next? Uh, you think it might even be negative on on marriage? Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm like per- it's going to cause a lot of divorces, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm the bad person. I'm a bad person to ask about marriage because I don't know if I think it's good for anybody anymore. I, I told Reva today, don't ever get married. Don't you know? Don't do not. Don't you dare. Don't you dare take what you have. So and think less. Of, don't you diminish your life right now, Reva. This is some man. Don't you dare to let him take away whatever. But uh, yeah, right. marriage is marriage is going anyway. It, well, it, it will just be uh, something that well, I'm talking about existing marriages though that got oh. they got married on the pretense and then the world changed. That's what I'm saying is a weird. That's like yes, uh, we're seeing a bubble begin to burst. Or, or well, it's or the same something. thing. As, it's the same thing as church. You you grew up and you say, oh, I got I need this church thing. Well, wait a minute. I was just told that. Do I actually need church? Do I actually need marriage? Right. I got lots of ideas. Right. I got things I want to get done. And so, yeah, marriage is going to definitely be take a hit. I mean, it might be. I'm not even saying the world's going to improve or they're going to be. So I don't know what they'll choose and I don't know if, what they'll do or if it'll be good or bad or what the unintended consequences will be. But I, I feel like this is kind of be. It, it does feel exciting to me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think I can keep my marriage together and stuff. But I mean, overall, well, I think there's already there's already been a shift of like more divorces and that kind of stuff. But I think it'll even out, but probably at a lower rate than, in, you know, it has been in the past. Yeah. As far as like the amount of marriages and how long they last and that kind of stuff. But what will women choose is the question. That's what's going to be. I mean, nobody knows yet. It, <laughs> it'll be, it, it'll be, it, uh, I guess kind of crazy to watch how, uh, like, Traditionally, uh, male or female jobs in the past—nurses, teachers, what that, what, mm. what, uh, you know, who will go for those jobs still, and what jobs, that look like. Yeah, but and then also you're, and say, you're talking about all these I pressures mean, all that, that have stuff. held that have held women back, which is 100 percent true. And then welcome to a whole new world of pressures that yeah, yeah, yeah. you will be exposed that, to now. That's I mean, true. You know, you know what I mean. The, Lots of the reasons men have been are the way they are is because the way things have been for men as well. Going to men die earlier. Men have a higher suicide rate. Men have a, a a lot of issues that are wrapped up with their identity and their work and their success. That's true. And those things yeah. will be taken on by women too now, yeah. more so. Like I mean, lots of people feel completely unfulfilled in their life 
because of their work and their uh, careers. Yeah, that won't be something. Be. That won't yeah. be something that you, you're going to get there and go. Wait a minute, this isn't what I thought it would be. Yeah, you know what I mean. True. Like, wait, yeah. hold on. That that other stuff was 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 good too. Like that that the worst thing I hate on earth is anytime somebody fucking uh, shits on a mom as if that's not work or a great job. My sure. wife didn't work in corporate world for several years and I couldn't have been more impressed with her work skills and effort and energy and time and all that stuff. I mean, I, that, that is what's really crazy. And so anytime that, that is what I hope doesn't happen where there is something amazing and beautiful that on that, in my opinion, only women can do is be that mom. It's just unbelievable. I'm, I am more impressed by that almost than, than any technology on earth that a mom can do the things that she does. Uh, you know, and so well, I hope I hope that that doesn't go away. Not that everybody's supposed to be that, and there's tons of women that aren't don't want to be moms. I get that. Well, yeah, but that's that's kind of the exciting part is that like gender norms are going away more so to where like people can do what they're naturally good at, you know? Yeah, and like people's skills and desires and abilities and goals, those things will be the driver versus like what you should do or shouldn't do because of what gender you are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that it'll be real interesting to see, but, but be, what uh, if, can I ask a question? And yeah. this is just a total what if what Reba just said, what if it just shows that women are better at being moms? And yeah, so like, like, we what, don't what, really know. What if we'll the data actually out. is like, oh wait, it turned out like this because the the data's right. Like, like, uh, yeah. for example, you know what I mean? Like, I have like kids, if their salaries and, go up and happiness goes way down, what would yeah. that mean? Or, or what if the it, what if families yeah, and children be a lot of take an ungodly out. hit? What what if like, oh wait a minute, holy shit, women been holding the entire world together, and we didn't like I said, everybody yeah. diminishes that, and it might like be yeah. everything. What there if being be a mom is, lost? Yep. is is more important than anything on earth, and we just don't know it. But I mean, there might be real. The well, good news would I think be there we might know be real, it's pretty important. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I, think, I actually think it's maybe the most important thing. Yeah, it's I, actually, I think I think that I, I really do believe that the activity of mo- okay, well, all right. That that brings me to a different side of the coin here. One of the worst things that exists is when you have people that are repressed or suppressed or held back or th- something bad, and then it goes bad, and they, they, they have a, a, a border collie stuck in an apartment. I use as an analogy a lot because it's, it's it seems wrong. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. dog's supposed to get out and run and do all the stuff. Now, <clears throat> these women that I'm talking about, I, I think about it this way, and this just speaks to me saying that they're powerful, okay? Women are, there's so many rich white women, and like I could talk about them at the school that Georgia goes to, and that's all this stuff. They are, these. some of these people are so powerful, but they have, they should be out in the world doing other things. They always should have been in addition to being a mom, of course, but oh, yeah. instead, all of their power and energy and force and productivity is forced on helicopter bulldozer parenting, wokeness, uh, bu- you know, consumerism. Unbel- I think part of the consumerism thing is this, too. It's yeah. unbelievably powerful women with appetites and money and drive and desire and ability stuck in the house and they're on Amazon and they're over parenting their kid and they're do, doing the over woke bullshit, uh, you know, all of that stuff. 
driving these, you know, we're we'll explaining everybody. All that stuff is that's a symptom. So I do not think that rich white women are bad guys. I do think they're causing many problems, many problems. But the reason is because they probably the same thing we're talking about. They've been their border calling in an apartment. Of course, they're going to overparent their kids. Of course, they're going to go crazy on social media on something about justice. Those are yeah. good impulses overdriven in a narrow field because they're we're limited in a holistic, integrated life. So I'm not mad at them for all the harm they cause because, my goodness, I think rich, elite white women are a big problem. I really do. I think it's a, I think they're the ones that try to control people and censor. They do a lot of shit that drives me crazy. But I think if I look at it from another point of view, I, I'm very excited for them to get redirected. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, just harness that and put it towards something yeah. productive. Yeah. Yes, because you're fucking these kids up. You're you're not you're doing some really bad shit out there on the internet and controlling people and trying to. Uh, uh, yeah, and for, it, you know. Yeah. Because that's in the, the name only, of doing in the yeah. name of trying to help the world. Yeah. It's, it's it's backfired in a way because they yeah because they haven't had the outlet or the the tunnel or path or the way there to get there. Yeah, so I am naming the rich white women as a problem. I do, I, and they're not mentally healthy either. That's another sign that the, something is is kind of wrong here. Like, the, a lot of them have ang- crippling anxiety and depression. I mean, it's very obvious, and a ton of energy cooped up will give you it just. That's just I don't know. I've just I've seen it in a new way. But they've been put in a horrible situation, and we hopefully will redirect their abilities to, to other things instead of. <laughs> You know, going crazy with the schools and buying shit on Amazon. I don't know. But I will say this. and I think you're right. And this is what I don't want people to do. The biggest problem with uh, I would even say the thing that's most frustrating is lots of times I hear the left or people who are woke. I put that in quotation marks saying really awesome, great ideas and thoughts. And it could really be valuable to this world. And in, all they're doing is just stuffing it into the world that they don't like. Like, yeah. hey, women should uh, work the same jobs and, that men do. Wait a minute. Hold on. It, the men got yeah, there for than bad reasons. Yeah. Yeah, you're way better than that. Yeah, you're freer don't, don't, than that. Do not yeah. fall for that. You can do more than that. That, yeah. that put that, Those men aren't all horrible men. The system fucked them over, too. And they're in these jobs and these things that they've that, – that they don't even understand either. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, th- that mental disability and, or men- mental illness and, and issues and anxieties and fears and worries and, and anger and all that stuff is there too. So don't just fall for that. Like, hey, we want the exact same thing as That's the, the mistake, side. Yeah. We don't know. You're better than that. You, the, yeah. Technology. Let's create. Let's don't just uh, create this the right and, way. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cre- creation is the, if is you the don't, only way. If you're not creating, then I'm going to suggest you're controlling. And you got to please. Please, you've got to stop trying to control other people. That is going to backfire on you anyway. People are smelling it. I see other people talking about it. It's going to be a topic. It's the next group that's going to be looked at poorly. It will be rich white women. I'm warning them. I'm for them. I'm saying let's get let's start creating and doing things. If you're going to sit back and want to control your family and people on the internet, and then this what happens to the that's not the right. You know, this is your opportunity to not do that. I know that. You know. If you had a, a okay, so this, this is what you're saying. You have an unbelievably, you now recognize you have an unbelievable, valuable resource, and all you're going to do is use that resource and energy into this bad machine that screwed up all the other resources. Yeah. No, you I wouldn't mean, do I, that. Yeah. You're not going to do that. You don't. You don't just take the valuable resource like rich white women. Obviously, 
uh, as a unbelievable potential, has so much potential. And if you just waste it on the right. same shit that didn't work for the guys, that, you know, everybody right now, when you think of the, the, the bad group of people on earth, it's middle class, white, cisgender males, right? Right. Now, the, the, the world next has click over. the world, the rest of the world has no culpability in that. Well, see, the, I the think system that, and all that stuff. I, I'm not saying there's plenty of responsibility on my shoulders right here for that as well. But I'm saying don't, don't, don't push women into the things that they fucked up up the other yeah. side. Yeah, they're the they're the other half and often the drivers of these men that you hate so much. The women counterpart is there also. And I mean, it is true that that that, that rich white women they they they're controlling most of the economy. Like I was complaining about Amazon's work culture. I know somebody that works there and it's going really bad. And I was thinking, well, I guess that's what their culture's like through and through, but that's you know, I'm thinking, well, I guess we're the consumers and I think, oh yeah, but if you look at the stats, it's like all the commerce is done by a very small amount of people as powerful, rich, white, white. I mean, I'm a way over generalizing, but you know what I'm saying? They drive the household, the bit, they're doing everything they can. So let's well, get, yeah, men's you know, products are marketed to women too. People know it. Yeah. It's all yeah. marketed to college to women. campuses are filled with white women. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that's that, right. Men are getting going less and less to school. There's all kinds of things. And so what we're saying is, or at least that's what I'm hearing is it is valuable. It's a resource. Not not placing blame here, but that but you're no. I'm saying that we got to help them. Well, yeah, the blame is more in the system. Yeah, the we're in a unique in the spot to use this though to, yeah. to help these help these this unbelievable resource of brain and wealth and money and time and all this stuff to to really make a, right. a real difference. When you peel back the curtain, soon enough they are going to be on the hot seat. You're going to see that they're going to be next after cis white men or whatever. I mean, they're next and and for good reason. So. Anyway, I, I'm trying to put that all together without being critical or just thinking uh, out loud. Whatever, but just thinking out loud. But we'll see. Listening to the thread, the newest single from The Devil Wears Prada. Love those guys. Been friends with them a long time. The thread is one of the songs from their new record, The Act, which came out this past Friday on Solid State Record. It rules. So go check it out. Seriously, The Devil Wears Prada will be on a full U.S. tour this fall with Norma Jean and Gideon. Man, what a great lineup! Uh, so head over to their website for tickets. Make sure to follow the band on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. 
to make sure you don't miss any updates or new music. The act is out everywhere now, so go dig into it and just listen to it. You're going to love it. All right, so I'm kind of excited about our guest today. It's David Morrell, and uh, so I was on. Tw- I followed David on Twitter because I like your your Twitter comments, and uh, I've been a fan of Rambo uh, since I was a little kid. So when I found out you wrote you wrote Rambo, because when I was a little kid, it was I thought Sylvester Stallone wrote it, <laughs> or you know I, that he was so popular to my childhood. I grew up in the in the 80s, and so uh, so it wasn't written by Stallone. Rambo, Rocky and it comes Rambo. From the mind of a Morel. Yeah. yeah, well, it it's, and, it's uh, and just to be clear, it's a it's a novel called First Blood that was right. published in 1972, and then adapted into the films uh, that uh, Sylvester starred in. Right, and so that's why I thought it was it was so interesting to follow you. And so I was on Twitter, and and uh, you know, right now the latest version of this uh, these films, the Rambo films, is coming out. And so I tweeted on there because, interestingly enough, David. You actually do kind of look like my dad a little bit. My dad, is, <laughs> my dad has always had a mustache. He wears glasses. Uh, you know, you're kind of a, 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 a thinner gentleman. And so, uh, uh, you know, I just, I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. My last name's Morell. Usually, you know, no, I don't know that many Morells. Are you, uh, are your, are your ancestors or whatever from Britain? I, you know, I think they are, but we, we haven't really done the, just, that's as far as I've gotten. I think, yes, a little bit. Uh, yeah. My father, uh, who died when I was very, very young, was in the, he was uh, uh, from the UK. He was a British citizen. Oh. And he was in, uh, he died in combat. Uh, he was a uh, Royal Navy aviator, uh, which is a kind of interesting combination. And uh, he had traveled to, I was raised in uh, Southern Ontario in Canada, and he, he had come to Southern Ontario to train uh, uh, Canadian flyers to, for World War II. I'm 76, so I would have, you know, I'm I'm I was born in 43 when, you know, all that uh, when the training was occurring and yeah. all. And then he was called back, and he died during the uh, D-Day operations. He was his job was to fly over the French coast and see where the uh, naval shells were landing, and then to advise them about how to adjust their trajectory. Wow! Oh my gosh! Not a not a healthy way to earn a living, right? Wow! That's, but I mean, what? I mean, I guess that definitely informed you. Then I mean, he passed away. How old were you when when? Uh, uh, uh he died in forty four, so I would have been a year old. And but it it impressed me. Uh, uh, that I'm saying that wrong. It it had an impression on me in a powerful way because I grew up without uh, a father, so to speak. My mother eventually remarried, and that wasn't a successful marriage. They ar- argued a lot. And But when I was young, I remember going to uh, other people's homes, and there was this this man hanging around. I was trying to figure out what he was doing there. And, <laughs> right. and that's when I learned that a, somebody had a father, and what was that about? And uh, so in a certain way, as I grew up, my fixation was about um, male authority figures and looking for father substitutes and I was fortunate enough to find uh, 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 male, adult males who were who, who were able to guide me in ways that I think were 
productive. Most of them were writers uh, who really nudged me along, and I I wouldn't have had a career without the help of of these people. Well, that's so what I kind of yeah. Go ahead. Your man. whole life, you've been then like had uh, authority. I mean, from the military to like even in First Blood, the the the, the cops and the military conflicts and all that has that stuff been on your mind your whole life well um in in the novel first blood um while in the movie uh uh played by brian brian dennehy the police chief is basically uh uh, sylvester stallone's age uh it's essentially a brother conflict okay and uh, whereas in the in the novel uh the police chief wilfred teasel is old enough to be Rambo's father. And he is clearly from an earlier generation that these wars don't mean anything to anybody anymore. But at the time, the Korean War in the 50s was a big deal. And Teasel was a war, a decorated veteran of, of Korea, thought he understood what war was about. And then he meets Rambo, who is, you know, from an entirely different war, a guerrilla war. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was meant to be a contrast in generations of father-son story, uh, uh, the, the different war, types of war, lots of contrasts in it. And um, it's it's worth pointing out that uh, you mentioned my mustache. Um, I grew that in uh, 1968 uh, as kind of research for the role um, because uh, there were there were hundreds of riots in the United States in 1968. Some of them were related to the assassinations of Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Uh, some of them were politically related, such as the what was called by a, by an official. Uh, task force, a police riot outside the uh, Democratic Convention in 1968 in Chicago, where the Democrats were uh, preparing to nominate somebody to run for president. And there were these hundreds of riots against all of this. uh, And uh, the war protesters tended to be, um, uh, uh, to to look uh, like rebellious. They had very long hair, they had beards. And I had this idea that uh, this decorated war veteran would come back from Vietnam and grow long hair and a beard Mm -hmm. and would be treated the way nearly everybody was treated who had long hair and beards at that time. It's hard if you didn't live at that time, it's hard not to be aware of of, uh, what it was like. And I grew my mustache. that was about as far as I was willing to go, but I grew a mustache uh, just to see. And oh, what a difference it made. Um, authority wow. figures, uh, law enforcement, what have you, clearly uh, didn't like my looks and would often comment about it as I walked down the street and things oh, like wow. that. So so I was, I mean, it was a, it was a, uh, uh, it was a aggressive time. Uh, and uh, so um, I, I kept the mustache because my dear wife, I've been married for more than 50 years, and my wife has basically only known me with a mustache. <laughs> so she doesn't want me to shave it off lest she not know who she's married to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that is one. that something that they got? <laughs> that, that point illustrates, I guess, that, uh, that in the movie they changed it to the, the brother conflict kind of thing and cast a so, younger... Yeah 
good actor. Is that was that uh, yeah. is that frustrating? Do you think well, that really changes the movie? No, not not at all. I, uh, the movie books and movies are different. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, Stephen King once said to me, uh, Steve Steve was uh, is a friend, and when he taught creative writing at the University of Maine, First Blood was one of his texts, along with uh, Double Indemnity by uh, James M. Kane. So he knew the novel well, and he said to me when he saw the movie, he thought I got treated about as well as a novelist can get treated because he actually recognized the plot. Uh, and that's not always something that can be say, said for books that are adapted into films. Um, and so, uh, and you know, I know my way around movies, and I knew it wouldn't be the same. In fact, I'm amazed that it's as much like the book as it is. There are key differences. One is uh, the police chief has moved into the background, uh, whereas in the book, he gets equal time. The book alternates chapters, Rambo, Teasel, Rambo, Teasel. Yeah. And the whole idea was that they they can't get out of their viewpoints to, to see the other character, to see, to get in the other character and understand him. It, it, it's as it were, the viewpoints of the novel are what the novel is about, how people get locked into their prejudices on both sides. And um, so... Um, with uh, uh, now I forgot my train of thought. I got so interested in the in the in the viewpoint issue. Remind me where we were before that. Well, I'm curious uh, based on this whole thing. I mean, hearing about your story and your dad and military stuff and the area you're, you're coming in now, and it seems just from hearing you talk for a second, you've got a really good grip on history. So I'm curious now if you uh, if you've seen the Ken Burns Vietnam documentary and stuff like that. But it it seems like there's so many parallels from that era to today. So I'm kind of curious from your point of view if you've got what you've got in that department. There is that, and now I remember what we were talking about. The differences in the in the book and the movie, and the movie has a drastically different ending than yeah. what is in the book. Um, and um, but uh, all in all, if we take the film on its own terms, it's coherent, it's well made, it's well acted. I I've introduced the film many times in theaters, and in fact, I even supplied an audio commentary talking about the differences and you know the interesting uh, parallels or contrast. Um, on uh, Blu-ray DVDs. So, um, yeah, there, there, uh, the one difference I would say is that there was the late 1960s were a very violent time in America, and it sort of climaxed with um, Kent State in mm-hmm. Ohio in 1970 when, um, this is still hard for me to believe, um, that uh, students protesting the war were shot to death by uh, mm-hmm. National Guardsmen, mm-hmm. and that you know that's still a topic that hasn't really, I I think, been fully discussed. So, um, the the differences there were are were were not only as sharp as they are today, but alas, they were were violent. And except for a few cases now. Um, um, the the political differences um, haven't haven't expressed themselves violently at the way they did, so that almost every night there was a riot on TV. Uh, I mean, it was it was a shocking time. So yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's a parallel. Does it, but this is what I mean. Does it feel like that time was more violent and shocking and protest and authority? When you look at today, are you saying it's Oh, it's not as bad as it used to be, or we've seen this all before, or are you sounding the alarm for what's happening today with authority? I don't want to get into um, uh, talking about you know different viewpoints in Rambo and Teasel. Um, 
what what I'm seeing is uh, partly because of social media. Ah, a, a child just walked in behind you and picked Hell up yeah. something and walked out. I, yes, I love did. it. That's my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, say hello to her. Um, <laughs> social media has made a huge difference in our society. Um, and uh, elements uh, such as uh, racism, uh, which I thought it uh, naively had pretty much been stamped out, um, turned out were lurking. Um, and that social media allowed pockets of, of people who felt that they were outcasts and outsiders to communicate with one another and become more powerful than they uh, had thought they were. Um, and I, so I, I see the difference in the culture as one that is being controlled by social media. And, and I'm, I'm just amazed and appalled uh, by how um, everybody's ready to get in an argument. And I don't mm -hmm. know if this is caused because of the tone on Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, but so far, um, we're not seeing, I mean, you know, we have not had hundreds of riots. And I'm not exaggerating when I say there were hundreds of riots. Uh, the cities, the inner cities of Gary, of Detroit, Gary, Indiana, Detroit, Michigan, uh, LA, never recovered. Uh, there's in many cases they're still struggling uh, to, to to overcome uh, the devastation that those riots created. Mm -hmm. I just That's heard a podcast I, that yeah. said racism uh, has gotten uh, got. I, this is crazy. I think it was Sam Harris, but this lady on there said that the people coming home and the vets coming home from the war and just the existence of the war and that violence uh, wound up having these echoes, and a lot of the the people that came home from that wound up. Uh, paramilitary stuff and got involved with militias and then the, the, the groups are already racist f took those people and so the whole thing of violence like kind of keeps going like in some of the militia based uh, it's a legacy almost yeah it's violence. like it's like just from causing harm and things from the war and conflict they just you know they continue to echo you know through today it can be argued uh, I mean I suppose somebody could do a serious study and I'm not I'm not uh, I don't have the authority to be able to say yes or no on that. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, um, if we look back, one, one legacy of the Vietnam War was that um, the enemy made drugs readily available through various outlets to American soldiers. And a lot of, uh, and, and let's face it, it wasn't exactly a, a happy environment. Right. And uh, more than any other war, uh, American service people came back from Vietnam with uh, drug habits. Mm -hmm. And uh, that much has been established. And one can argue that, you know, the, the continuation of um, American society was affected by the prevalence of drugs that became accepted after the war. Um, I, I, you mentioned something about uh, the, the way uh, Rambo was, was depicted in the, in the movie, because there he is in the novel with his long hair and his beard. And being picked on the way a police officer, not all, but it would not be unexpected for a police officer to pick on him in 1968. But in, in the movie in 1982, Sylvester has long hair and he's clean shaven. And when Brian Dennehy says, uh, it's, this isn't quite the line, but this is what he, what this is the gist of it. We don't like guys who look like you coming to our town. And people in the audience, men, all look like Sylvester. Right. They all had long hair, you know, down over their ears and what have you. And I remember watching the movie with an audience 
and and men were sort of turning to each other saying well what's wrong with the way he looks and if the movie was going to fail i felt it was going to fail at that moment that the audience would not accept that police would just look at this guy and say he doesn't look right whereas in 1968 with the beard and long hair they would have said he doesn't look mm mm-hmm. Because uh, right. the 80s are different than the 60s. Do you ever take any? Um, has it ever come up that 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 Rambo is such an icon of violence? And it's in the 80s when we were all obsessed with violence. But Rambo is just an icon of that. It just, well, that's what I, that's what I was going to ask David as well. Uh, it, because the movie is not he doesn't really kill anybody, but in your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in your book, he kills a lot of people. Like well, that's that's because I wanted to bring them more home. And right. there's, you know, reviewers at the time with the film, or I'm sorry, with the novel, uh, couldn't figure out uh, if there was a hero. Uh, and mm-hmm. to me, there weren't any heroes in this. It was two people locked in a deadly conflict and how they got there. And Rambo had come back hating himself for what he had discovered about himself in the war. Um, and and the the police officer sort of at the wrong time and 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 Rambo basically says gives a line from what's in the movie there's there are some thematic parallels you know uh, it, it, leave me alone or I'll give you a war you won't believe yeah. um, and I readily acknowledge the the degree of violence that's in the novel for the purposes I mean in reflecting a violent society in the late 60s trying to understand what the hell was going on by the time the movie is made, uh, the character is toned down so that he's now a victim and he's yeah. not angry. Um, and uh, so that uh, he then becomes um, a different sort of character. And it's no, it's no secret, I suppose, although some people might be shocked, um, that in the novel, Rambo dies. He's killed by, the, by Colonel Troutman. Who the man who trained him? Yeah. Uh, whereas in the movie, they shot a version in which Rambo commits suicide, uh, takes a weapon from Colonel Troutman and kills himself. Wow. And audiences, uh, this is readily available on current uh, DVDs of the uh, Blu-rays and and what have you of the film that have extras. And uh, and audiences were not happy because the character had been softened. He was no longer that 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 uh, troubled, angry person from the war, and he was more a victim. Um, And uh, the uh, result is that uh, they were able to soften him enough. He, he, that one, one character dies at Rambo's hands sort of indirectly when Rambo throws a rock at a helicopter. The man's been shooting at him and he throws the rock. Guy falls out of the helicopter and Rambo runs over to him and Ted Kotcheff, the director, is known to him, instructed uh, a slide is to look at the body as if he's been looking at the carnage that he saw in the war and to be sickened and, and disturbed by it. Uh, and the only other uh, bloodshed is later uh, Rambo has stolen a military vehicle and uh, uh, four police officers, maybe it's three, uh, in a police car chasing and they're having a bang-bang car fight, uh, you know, where the cars are and the truckers colliding are colliding and they're shooting and Rambo rams the car off the road and causes a collision with a parked car and there's an explosion. So I guess we could say the body count went up a little bit there, but they aren't really people there. We see hands sticking guns out of a window, but that's the body count. Now, once you get into Rambo two and three, now it's a different matter. Uh, And 
um, you know that it, it, it and it and it seems with each movie the you know it escalated. Yeah, that's why I was wondering. Like, if I almost think like looking at the book and then looking at the movie as it came out, so it's obviously that when the movie came out, they were thinking, let's make this character more endearing. Get rid of, like you said, his hate, his anger, his self introspection, and it's just a guy walking, and it's just the bad bad timing between him and this cop, right? But I was thinking if. If your book was made into a movie today, do you think it would be closer to how you wrote it? You- um, I, I have no idea. You know, that it's a hypothetical. But yeah. um, what you know, with the it's it's known now that I I I wasn't happy with the tone of the current film. Yeah. Uh, the Tell character- us more about that too when you have. Yeah, you, get you mean the to- movie, the version out now, the latest edition. You know, yeah. um, uh, my 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 problem with the film is, and and there's an irony here because the character is as rage filled as as my Rambo in the novel, but that novel then morphed into a series of films in which redemption was was the theme. You know that this troubled man would would be struggling to find a, a redemption, and and uh, the the rage in the current movie, um, and I. I texted Sly to say this to him. I said, you know, given um, the world as it is today, I think the movie should have given us hope rather than rage. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, uh, and, and one, an artist has a right to express what that person feels, but I, with my unique relationship with the character, I don't know if this has ever been a case before, um, uh, where uh, uh, somebody created an, a character in another form and saw it. I sometimes call myself Rambo's father because the character grew up and went in directions that I, you know, had no control over. And I don't, you know, the second movie is a lot of fun. It's sort of like uh, Tarzan, right. you know, it's like in, in uh, the, you know, it's a sort of modern Tarzan Western to me. Uh, but, you know, thinking of the current one, I, you know, I give credit. I, hey, Sly, if that was the film you wanted to make, that's your right. But in my unique a situation it is also my right to say you know i think maybe hope would have been better than rage how do you respond to your text um oh we're you know kicking it back uh, you know naturally uh, uh you know we're uh, uh the film is what it is and my reaction what is is what it is yeah. I wanted to uh, still just stay with the book for a moment. You're in, in, in the book version that you wrote uh, of Rambo. A couple things stuck out to me. One, there is no John Rambo. You, his name was just Rambo, which is now that name is just iconic. I mean, my mother-in-law named her cat Rambo, yeah. uh, you know, and she's a very conservative Baptist, you know, so just Rambo. No. And you, and in the book, it's just Rambo. There's not John. And the book is set in Kentucky, the South, if you will. And in the movie, they set it up in the Northwest. So I wanted to know, like, your thoughts there. Were you thinking more of that, that, that Southern conflict and why just the Rambo name only? That's kind of like a conic one name person. I was interested in a, a, my mentor, one of my mentor, writing mentors was a man named Sterling Siliphant, S-I-L-L-I-P-H-A-N-T. And Sterling had, uh, I knew Sterling, and Sterling had written the screenplay adapting John Ball's novel In the Heat of the Night with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger. 
And uh, Sterling received the Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for that. And um, when I, you know, it's inevitable, given my admiration for Sterling, that uh, you know, with with Rambo and the story I was telling, that I thought, all right, I can put this in. Uh, uh, I thought of Kentucky as being just farther north in the south that it wouldn't be cracker barrel right. but it would have that what, what americans recognize is that kind of southern uh you know um uh flavor for lack of yeah. a better so Cracker Barrel's been a way to make fun of the South since the seventies. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't want to. It wasn't making fun, you know. But <laughs> right. plus, Kentucky has what what's been called the Grand Canyon uh, of the South. It has a dramatically um, wild. I don't know if it is now, but you know, when I was writing it, that was the case. And some parts of it hadn't um, been mapped adequately. Uh, so I thought, all right, I can set it there. And the in addition, I was writing the novel as I was a graduate student at Penn State. Uh, and uh, the Alleghenies, uh, which I could experience, um, the, the mountains there, more southward into uh, the Cumberlands in Kentucky. So I thought, okay, you know, the, the locale, the physicality of it would be kind of the same. And you know, I, I was using what I knew, in other words. Um, and um, for reasons to do with... Uh, financing, uh, Carolco uh, Pictures, uh, C-A-R-O-L-C-O, uh, made the Rambo, uh, the first three Rambo films, and they they had a deal in Canada. They figured out how to get if they made a film in British Columbia, they would get some credits from British Columbia to help make them help them make the film. Mm. And in addition, the the difference between American and Canadian money was so great that that also would help if they brought Canadian American money in to transfer it to Canadian money to make the film so that they could make a film for 15, 16, 17 million dollars. The, the budget number changes periodically for something that looked much, much more expensive. And even then, that wasn't small change in 1981 when right. the film was made. So uh, I thought it was very interesting that the that one of the producers, uh, Andrew Vanya, uh, whom I got to know pretty well and and liked, uh, that before they made the decision to go to British Columbia to pretend that the movie was set in, say, Washington State, uh, that he phoned and said, is there any reason why this story won't work if we transfer it to the Pacific Northwest? And uh, that's a shocking phone call. Producers do not call authors to ask them if the story will work if they do this and this. But that's the way um, Carol Cole and Andrew Vanya and Mario Casar operated. And my answer was no. Uh, you could you the locale had simply been for my purposes, and that if they wanted to set it in the Pacific Northwest, it wasn't going to affect anything. Uh, and I've I've often thought about how interesting and and kind of telling that phone call was about how they uh, did business. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's great. And even I think in the movie, the the green of being in Washington, I think it was set in like a small what was Portland. the town? I think actually the town was called Hope. 
It's I a think. real town it, it, in British Columbia. It's actually yeah. called Hope, and they oh, have a film yeah. festival every year with, you know, they show the Rambo films, and, and yeah. although many of the locations are gone, the, the bridge at the start, um, where uh, uh, the, the police chief expects Rambo to keep going across the bridge and disappear, and Rambo comes back, that's been destroyed. Yeah. Uh, so people will go there trying to, uh, uh, you know, discover locations. It, enough time has passed, many of them no longer exist. Yeah, I wanted to ask you too, though. What, so, how did you come up with the name Rambo, and why just the one name? <laughs> well, it's it's a hilarious. No, I think you know the answer. It's hilarious. <laughs> um, and yet, when I teach writing, I always tell my students. Um, ideas can come from the most unlikely sources. So never shut your mind off. Always be looking to seize on something that otherwise might not seem important. So my wife and I and our very small daughter were living in uh, State College, Pennsylvania, where, where Penn State is located. And oh, we, we did not have a lot of resources. So my wife, with 25 cents, had been able to buy a bunch of apples from a roadside stand. And oh boy, now we've got apples. Yeah. So I was working. We had uh, uh, a one bedroom and uh, my desk was in the bedroom when our daughter's crib was there and our, our, uh, you know, our bed. And, and uh, I'm in there typing away. And I, I knew the name had to have the sound of force. Um, but I didn't have the name. And so I'm, as I'm writing, I've left these blank spots on the pages and I'm, I'm using actual typing, uh, uh, you know, rather than people today are really spoiled with computers because, yeah. you know, it was a physical thing to, with a typewriter. So I've left all these gaps and, and my wife comes in as I bought these apples. Hey, only 25 cents taste one. And I'm, you know, I'm in my inspired mode. So I'm saying, oh, yeah, yeah, leave me alone. And <laughs> she says, no, bite the apple. And I just, I loved it to emphasize that the, the mythic overtones of bite the apple. Yeah. And uh, so, uh -huh. I, okay, I bit into the apple and it tasted pretty good. And and it's almost inevitable. If you bite into an apple and it tastes pretty good, you're going to say, what's it called? Mm -hmm. that's just yep. what people do so i said yeah. hey tastes pretty good what's it called she said it's called a rambo apple and i you know gaped for a second and said what repeat that she said a rambo apple i said <laughs> spell it r-a-m-b-o and i there i was i had the name and for people who might be confused the rambo apple is a popular apple in central pennsylvania where where we were then living it's just yeah. that he hadn't experienced it yet, but I, you know, I knew immediately what to do with that name. That's yeah. When terrific. I read about it, I, I still never had one of those. I don't, I didn't know you at all. Yeah. You won't find them in supermarkets, but if you go to, uh, uh, for a long time, maybe they still do. Uh, Penn State has uh, something called the Nittany Lion Inn, um, at which is uh, their place where uh, you know where visitors stay. It's you know sort of a hotel on campus, very nice, very old feeling, very elegant. And they usually have, uh, at least the last time I was there, a big bowl of Rambo apples right there by the check-in desk. Oh, so nice. you can not because of me. I'm sure they don't even yeah. think about the connection, but but it's a it's a popular apple in that area it's a good thing she didn't give you a gala apple or a macintosh or a granny first blood fuji first blood yeah granny, don't do it granny uh, granny David, smith I wanna, first blood yeah, yeah granny smith first go. blood you're right uh a red delicious first blood yeah um i wanted to ask you okay so my last name is morell too and so matt and i we do a we're, we're in a band as well 
And so we started our band back in the early 2000s, late 1990s. And when we told our family that we were going to do music for professionally, it was not received well. And I wonder, like you, you said, you know, you said you were lucky enough to be around some, some authors and that might have like kind of kindled some of that fire to be an author. But what was it like for you? Uh, because you, you were an author, but like you said, you didn't even have, when you first were an author, you weren't making much resources. I'm sure there had to be times where you thought maybe give up and get the job that's better paying. Right. And even when you wrote Rambo, it didn't be- even become a, mo- how much success was there? It, 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 it was it waited about a decade before it even became a movie. Well, yeah, uh, 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 lots of interesting stuff in there. The the book was a big success in '72. It was reviewed everywhere. I, it was astonishing for a first novel how well yeah. it was reviewed. And while the uh, the advance wasn't much, it was thirty five hundred dollars, and I was making, mind you, ten thousand five hundred as an assistant professor at the University of Iowa. So it was maybe a quarter of my salary. So it might Were you not sound writing? Like much. Uh, no, I, I have my doctorates in American literature, so okay. I teach, uh, I taught American novel and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Um, and, uh, I, yeah, I still think about that $3,500 because nice. <laughs> my agent said, I'm going to, you need an attorney for this movie contract. Um, and the, the, uh, also, there was a big paperback contract too. So you know, I, I, it was for somebody who no resources. It was a big shock, and we just right. saved it all. Uh, I never drew on any of that money. We just used it if we needed a car or something. Um, uh, but my agent said, "You need an attorney for this uh, movie contract." So, okay, and he says it's going to cost you five hundred dollars. And I then I'm like, God, my <laughs> my agent takes takes ten percent. And then it's 500 and then I'm going to have to pay taxes on this. And by the time I'm done, you know, will right. there be anything left? And so he came back after a while, and it's, it's sort of amusing. He said, David, I've got you protected so that if uh, there was a minimum, a minimal, it's not much, uh, profit participation. And we got to remember that in the movies, profits are like the horizon. They recede infinitely, That's right? right? But, That's right. but it's Same nice to be. Nice to be able, yeah, especially these days, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so uh, I, you know, it's nice to be able to say you had him, though. So he said, for five hundred dollars, this is what you're getting. If there are sequels or remakes, you still have some profit participation. And I said, how can there possibly be sequels or remakes? Everybody's dead at the end. Right. And and he <laughs> said, David, you don't understand the movie business. If this, <laughs> If this picture ever gets made, it could be a musical comedy on a submarine. Yeah. Oh man! Yeah. So right. stuff happened, but you know what you say about <laughs> music? Music was my first choice. I wanted to be. I wanted to be. Nobody knows about this stuff anymore. But I wanted to be Nelson Riddle. I wanted to be a an arranger. Nobody arranges anymore in the yeah. in the same way. Mm-hmm. But and I took serious uh, music education, and then well, it's composition either way, right? What you're arranging and composition are. I mean, we're in getting in very similar territory there and overtones and undertones you know Mm -hmm. structures of chords and Mm -hmm. what underneath drives it i'm fascinated by jimmy webb's music i have a songbook of his and if you're into music you might you know this is a lot of people want to understand what we're talking about but if he has an f chord in the bass he has beneath it a d on the f chord to Mm -hmm. support it and you know that's not 
what I was taught and, uh, you know, his, uh, and he plays the piano well enough to be able to support that chord. So basically it's an F sixth with the, with the sixth underneath the F. And I mean, to me, this is astonishing, but, but that kind of undertone and thinking of structure in that way has a carryover into, um, the way, uh, novels can be constructed. Well, if you're yeah. going to talk about music theory, which is my native language, then I want to jump over and think about how you think about the nuts and bolts of, of writing writing and composition and narrative, because that's more of a hobby to me. But yeah, I understand that music stuff there. I hear that D as, uh, to make that an F6, you're trying to not hear it as a D minor, <laughs> you know? You yeah. You disguise that there to make that happen. I, I know exactly what you mean. At about, you know, and I, I went through harmony, counterpoint, and orchestration. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I had certificates in these things, and uh, I was very young. I was only like 16, um, but I, I was determined. Uh, I mean, music is fascinating, and I could, I could in my day, uh, I had an idiot savant gift, if we want to call it that, for reading chord symbols, and I could do four sharps and four flats for anything so that I was hired a lot for dance bands, not rock bands, but dance bands to do, uh, to fill in if their pianist, um, got sick, you know, with a half hour's notice, I could be there and I could do all the fill-ins for them because I knew what, you know, E flat seventh meant, um, or, you know, a C diminished or F augmented or what have you. And so you can comp along with jazz standards on the piano. No problem yeah, to add exactly. today. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. But That's I couldn't amazing. do. But if they said it's your turn for a solo, I said there's no way. All you hear is rhythmic block chords. Ah, <laughs> wow. So I bet you have a similar brain to mine. To, to me, to, to improvise freely out of my voice without thinking about anything would be a dream come true. It's not something I can do. But I love chord structure. I love song structure. I love how it works. I like. Th- I mean, those details are kind of my life i'm really an arranger i mean that's actually probably the yeah. thing i'm most skilled at but what does that mean for writing though what is the equivalent in writing open me to that window what is your how do you think of uh, narrative theory or something everything is structure um uh, 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 i start by writing a letter to myself in which i i ask myself first why is this project worth doing uh, there has to be something about the theme and the way the book will be written and the research that makes it worth, say, a year of my life working every day. Uh, and then, you know, I, I start investigating, you know, what's it about? How, what, where were the characters? What sort of characters would I need? What kind of setting? And then becomes the all-important question, how does it begin? And if so, then I wrestle with the whole idea of what my beginning and as often I have... Uh, different beginnings, and sometimes they lead me in bad directions, like First Blood, the novel, uh, and I didn't know much about structure at the time. Uh, um, First Blood begins with the chase through the forest, and I thought, well, you know, that'll be exciting. People want to read on, but what I realized eventually was that we didn't know who these characters were, so we didn't care what happened to them, so the the chase through the forest was meaningless. So I had to go backward until I finally said, it's when these two people first see each other. That's the beginning of the story. And if, and then, as I mentioned, you know, I worked out this structure painfully. It wasn't obvious to me at the start that the, each chapter would alternate. So we'd have Rambo looking at the police chief and then the police chief looking at Rambo and each of them reacting 
uh, so that the reader, while they were in, while readers were in Rambo's mind, they'd say, oh, that awful policeman. But if they were in the policeman's mind, they'd say, oh, that awful Rambo. And so they'd always be switching their allegiances. And uh, I mean, that's a good example of how structure is important. So once I know how the piece will begin, you know, then uh, what be- it becomes the logical matter is saying, well, what, if I begin this way, what is the next piece of narrative information? that I need to provide the reader in order to move the story forward. And sometimes I I don't anticipate enough and I might be moving like two or three incidents ahead of where I should be and I'll realize that, no, 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 I got to fill this in, otherwise this later scene won't make any sense. So uh, it's mostly... Uh, James M. Cain, uh, this is now a lot of people are going to be walking away from us at this point. James That's M. That's all right. I'm engaged uh, fully. Said, yeah. said that storytelling was like uh, algebra, that it's A plus B plus C plus D equals the narrative. And A is chapter, B is a chapter, C is a chapter, D is a chapter. So you have to arrange those chapters in the logical sequence of narrative information that will give you the emotional result that you're aiming for. And as I said, sometimes that isn't obvious until after the fact. And I'm I'm working on a novel now. I've got hundreds of pages and I still don't know what the heck the beginning chapter is. <laughs> I, I write one and I go about 50 pages and I say no. No, no, that's not when I get here. The, the readers will not be with me. Mm. They will not understand what I'm going for. So then I start. I mean, I've got like four sequences of like 150 pages, each with a different beginning. And I finally said, this book isn't ready to be written. And I've started something else. So that's very exploratory, wow. though, because I think a lot of people that are songwriters, for instance, now I'm with you. That is how I write music is that exact way. But uh what I find for a lot of creatives is it just comes out that way. But those people are not willing to rearrange, and they're either talented or they're not, but they just write a story and it comes out, and they're not willing to trash it or re- reorganize it, and they don't try 10 different things. I mean, are, are isn't there other types of writers who just start at the beginning and that's their process? Well, I sort of do start at the beginning. You know, I'm outlining it in a way that... Um, I believe there's a lot of room for, you know, discussion or, or for discovery. Right? Uh, uh, and, you know, a lot of what I'm aiming for is an emotional reaction. Now, I mentioned Jimmy Webb before. I'm fascinated by him as a songwriter. And when he wrote what I consider to be one of the great, great songs, Wichita Lineman, I mean, it's so simple and powerful. Uh, but he said he got the idea. He was driving through, I don't know if it was in Kansas or, or Oklahoma, but very flat territory. And he's driving and he saw this truck and this person climbing this pole you know, from several miles away. And he drove and he passed the guy and he kept going and he sees him in his rearview mirror. And he says, that's got to be the loneliest job in the world. Um, and and out of that started thinking how he could communicate that loneliness uh, in a song. Uh, so I mean, everybody's different, right? Everybody has a different way of doing things. And uh, I'm very interested in the the Ken Burns uh, country music mm-hmm. uh, um, documentary that's uh, been uh, going on. I'm not quite done with it. I recorded it, but uh, I met with the Hank Williams material where Williams. Uh, it just seems to have been visited. Uh, he seems to have had a title come to him and then all of a sudden was able to write a song in like 15 minutes, which didn't need any changing. And, the lonesome. So lo- I heard Ken Burns talking about that too, yeah. And that to me is one of the, this like Wichita lineman, one of the great 
songs, you know, and it's interesting, there's no bridge in I'm so awesome, I could cry. You know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's repeated. And, and what I noticed was that, um, uh, you know, some I, uh, there may be some key changes in there. I, I'd have to go back and listen, but uh, you know, that's about as as haiku like a song as there can be, and and it just sort of comes to him. I, you know, how enviable an ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to be able to notice it and then have the craft to be able to support it, but to be able to notice that inspiration is is the big time because that's what I'm at in song. I've been doing songs forever, thinking it was about the notes and the chord structure. That's what I've always thought. And now I'm at this other place like, wait a minute, if I understood the lyrics here, my decision making would be so much easier. If I just understood what we were trying to do instead of just guessing until it seems right or interesting, then it just gives you a razor to make the decisions with so easily. There's a, you know, the, on a parallel, um, uh, Frank Sinatra, whom I have a keen interest in, not as a actor or as a public uh, person, but as a singer who who can it can be dis- demonstrated was the the most uh, the greatest um, um, American uh, interpretive singer of the 20th century, and what Frank would do because uh, he wasn't a songwriter, but he was emotive, and mm-hmm. what he would take it he would take a song. And the and and the lyrics would be sort of you know on a lead sheet near him, and he would get pen and paper and he would write the lyric as if he were inventing it, and he would then crush that paper and throw it away and then write the lyric again as if he was writing it. Each time investing his emotion into the lyric. Oh, and that's one, that's one reason why Frank was able to to give the illusion of telling us his the secrets of his soul um, because he had so internalized those lyrics. And uh, one could argue, you know, and there are examples of this with fine melodies, but if you don't have the lyric to match it, that song is not going to sing. Well, that speaks right. to uh, singing being like acting, which I think is very much yes. the case. If you think about a method actor, they give their entire self to the role. So when you say what Frank was doing there, that's what I hear. Is he had to make him trick himself into thinking it was his idea, and then he could really sell it. And if you look at now, his one of his idols was Billie Holiday, and Billie did that, although she didn't write down the, the lyrics, but you know she internalized. But if we look at a contrasting singer that Frank admired, uh, Ella Fitzgerald, there are very few, t- as, as great a singer as she was, if you, um, if you listen to her, each song pretty much sounds the same. Uh, you know, it's it it's about the vocalizing, not about the interpreting. Um, and but but Frank was an interpreter, and even when he wasn't singing so good at the end, uh, not one could argue from after his retirement on, uh, he retired in what 1970, and then came back in 71, 72. Um, he, after that, his voice wasn't quite the same, but it didn't matter because he could make us believe the lyric, and that's yeah. that's you know for me what popular singing is about. Wow. I wanted to ask I could you too. this territory uh, all day, but I'll let, oh, that, I let that all go. Yeah, I know. Well, I wanted <laughs> to ask amazing. you one, uh, one last question here. Just talking about your, your, your structure and the way you write. Uh, I, I, I didn't know this about you, but you and your wife lost your son, Matthew, yes. uh, to, to Ewing's sarcoma is a rare yes. form of cancer, bone cancer, I believe. And um, I, I wanted to say in your book and you wrote a book called Fireflies that yes. delves into that. And then I think there's another book that you wrote, too, that I'm not as familiar with. Desperate, I think, that also talks about lo- lo- the loss of a son. But I wanted to, to know, 
capturing that emotion and feeling that and then putting it into words, what, what was that experience like for you? Well, sometimes I think writing can be a form of what we might call scriptotherapy, mm-hmm. um, which is we write to try to understand our emotions or maybe to expunge them. And uh, after our son died, it, it's, a, it's a very rare bone cancer uh, that causes growths on the, the bones. And uh, Matt was 15 when, when this happened. And um, it's very rare to the point that only 200 people get the disease each year in the United States. And many years later, uh, recently in 2000, Matt died in 1987. Uh, recently in 2009, my 14-year-old granddaughter, Natalie, died from the same rare bone cancer. Only 200 people get it each year. And uh, the problem was, uh, you know, for us, I mean, uh, how do you relate to that? I, I mean, that's a cosmic kind of, because it's not, it, it's not supposed to be inherited. Um, so, um, yes, in back when Matt died, I wrote a couple of books about grief, um, and, you know, a, a lot for myself, but other people in grief uh, took something from those books. And then after Natalie died in 2009, I, I tried a different way. I, I uh, became fascinated by uh, the Victorian era, and I escaped. I, I thought I was time traveling. It, it was that intense, the immersion in the research materials. And I wrote about a real-life uh, person in uh, 1850s named Thomas de Quincey, who had invented the concept of the subconscious way before Freud. And so there I was writing a, a series of th- mystery thrillers about the guy who'd invented the concept of the subconscious <laughs> while I'm trying, you know, to dig into, to, you know, to, to, to get all the grief I, out, of, out of me. And uh, so in that case, I wrote three of those books. Uh, I spent four. Uh, four or five years on those on those books and you know they basically were a form of scriptotherapy for me to to help me that is so awesome to hear thank you for sharing that because it's just i hear that so pure in a world where people think oh there's scripts and movies and you get a book deal and you get signed to a record deal and you get a bunch of chicks and you make money or you get famous (laughs) or you get a lot of spotify plays you're making art that resonates and is real for the reasons of Stuff like getting the grief out of you. Yeah. That's why people make stuff. That is such that's so heartening right. to, to hear. These days and these days, as you said with Spotify and all that, and you know, Jimmy Webb, I had a chance in fact to meet Jimmy when he uh when he uh performed here. Uh and I actually have my photograph with him, which I'm I'm honored to have. And Jimmy was saying, you know, royalties, you don't get it. it's hardly anything now for music. Mm-hmm. Um and 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 with books too, the um the money now there are still some big book deals, but for the most part, um the average author does not make uh, the kind of money that people think authors do. And, and I, I only know the only reason to do this is as a vocation, uh, not a profession and, and is to, is to use our abilities, uh, to express ourselves in order to understand ourselves better and maybe help other people understand themselves better. And otherwise you're, you know, you're chasing the market and you're, you're Mm -hmm. always, Oh, you know, I'm not number one or I'm not this or I'm not that. These are all false values. Uh, you know, what you, what you, and if, you know, Hemingway said talent 
determination and luck. And he said, don't underestimate luck. And, you know, that, all that's out of my control. All I can do, I, I have a mantra, which I suppose would apply to musicians as much as it does to writers, is be a first-rate version of yourself and not a second-rate version of another author or musician. Yeah. That's, and, that's great. And, and the second mantra is don't chase the market. You'll always see its backside. That's that's exactly right. right. There's something about it when you create something new that you know it originated from you, like a desire you had to yeah. find something. When you achieve it, there's nothing it you know it's right. Like you can't it's not for a reason other than it was already intrinsically the value of what you just accomplished, you know. And that's the thing. If it has a life of its own, which is a, a matter of luck often, uh hooray. Uh, so, but yeah, in the meantime secondary. you you did not waste your time writing something that was not authentic for you. Well, how do you distinguish vocation and uh, what did you profession? Have, profession. I thought yeah. I like that distinction. I'm happy. You know, I mean, my my mother didn't raise an idiot. I, you know, I I like to you know be able to eat and sleep in a safe room and all that. Um, uh, so naturally, when I write, I make certain decisions that are predicated upon, you know, I'm not going to write a musical comedy on a submarine. Uh, right. Let's put it that way. So what I write is, is, is compatible with the market, but what I write within that, within thrillers or mysteries and what have you, um, is what I like to think is unique. And I, you know, the people that people, on, on, uh, when they read a book by mine, they say, yes, that's a David Morrell book. That's not me imitating somebody else. And I, you know, I like to I think they come to my work, you know, for that, whatever personality it is in there. So while it's a profession for sure, um, you know, we like to, to be recompensed for our efforts. Um, but the vocation part of it is, you know, we do this for, for, you know, personal urgings uh to for lack of a better expression yeah david this That's has been phenomenal true. i mean I, I i couldn't have been more pleased and intrigued and engaged in an interview we just we really do appreciate your time thanks for giving us so much information and stuff well, to it's think fun about. to been talk a lot about fun. music i you know i i boy i still write songs um i don't do anything with them but uh i'll you know things will come to me frank uh, sinatra heard music in his head all the time and i you know that happens to me and so i you know i noodle uh, and uh, I, I i write them down i can you know i can as we discussed i can actually put them on paper and occasionally i show them to fellow musicians um but you know i have no illusions about my place in musical society but uh it sure can be soothing and exciting absolutely oh, yeah, yeah. you, you yeah. Uh, resonate to me as uh i mean i think this is satisfying to me in the sense that you're a generation ahead of me and i think we're isolated from people that are not our age but it's just so there's so many similarities in the way you think and are doing to see that in a generation beyond is is I'm glued to it, and you're like a DIY do it yourself, figure out your own way, punk rocker guy, yeah. <laughs> still doing it. It makes me so happy. That's the search. That's what I I, I was talking about Sterling Silifon in Route 66, and you know two guys trying to find. I did talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. And we we covered Sterling, so many yeah. things. Well, because uh, I did an er interview earlier, and I I talk about uh, Sterling often, and and. I didn't want to sound like I'm talking about something that I hadn't. Um, but Sterling had grown up in the back seat of a traveling salesman's car. And he was a journeyer. And that's what Route 66 was about. And he was always looking ahead and voyaging and discovering. And, uh, and that just became inbred in me. And when my wife and I moved to Penn State, 
from Canada to study, uh, you know, to, for me to go to grad school. That was part of the deal. We're leaving our country for heaven's sake. I'm now an American citizen, but uh, as, as well as a Canadian citizen. And but we, you know, we said, oh, what the heck? Yes, let's try it. It's going to be an adventure, and that's always been. Um, my goal here, you know, I start writing about Rambo and First Blood, and my previous three books were set were about a guy in 1850s, the, the, Thomas De Quincey, who invented the concepts of subconscious, and I'm writing imitations of Victorian thrillers. Well, how big a jump can that be? And yet, yeah, that's the whole idea that you know there is. Uh, uh, there's some uh, uh, if we, we if we don't grow if we don't change if we don't look ahead you know what are we doing yeah I know what are we here for and right. why why would you want to stop when you're 30 or 40 I did that make any sense some of and some of you know people like that too but that's yes. what most people are like yeah. well you know I hate to make you know I hear what you're saying and you know uh, uh, I I've been I've I've been fortunate to meet people who are, you know, of like minds, but, uh, but, you know, that should be the goal that each day we get up and say, all right, how are we going to change today? Yes. Mm, that's great. Dave, what we a, didn't even get amazing, it. We didn't even yeah. have time to get into everything. I wanted to talk about you working with Marvel and doing the comic books and all that stuff. So maybe one day we can get, we can get you back on. We'd love to talk more music and all that. This stuff. has who been knows? fun. You know, we can talk especially more about the comic yeah. books. were in another way of looking forward. I wrote about Captain America, Spider-Man and Wolverine, quite a trifecta. Yeah. And you know, I, I, yeah, let's do it. Let's find out. Yeah. I mean, in truth, you know, somebody offered me a chance to write a play, you know, uh, even a musical using the music, you know, stuff that we talked yeah. about. I'd love to do it. Um, I, you know, if, if it's uh, different and I can learn from it and it's a challenge and it'd be exciting, uh, why not? Oh, that sounds so good. That sounds so good. David, we really appreciate it. Everybody can find you. Is the easiest place maybe at davidmorell.net, I believe, yeah. is, is, is your website. They can find that. And, and let's leave everybody. If everybody, lots of information. Yeah, lots of what's a but besides uh, first blood. What's a good book for people to get into you with, like a good starter? When you would say for the people. next one, the uh, uh, people sometimes uh, you know it depends on how they feel about the character, but Rambo. But uh, a different one would be the Brotherhood of the Rose. Yeah, Brotherhood of the Rose is, was an espionage novel. Uh, I wrote in 1984. It was the first novel to combine the U.S. and U.K. Um, uh, British spy novel traditions, combining the action of the American spy novel with the authentic spy tradecraft of the UK novel, uh, and that had never not been done before, and uh, and uh, it was a, a, a really a, a great success for me. And beyond that, it became I love to be able to say this, it became the basis for the only TV miniseries to air after a Super Bowl, uh, and I mean you know. Yeah, I, I, I just think that's so cool to be able to yeah. say that. So, The Brotherhood of the Rose, and then there were two follow-up books, The Fraternity of the Stone and The League of Night and Fog. And then I stopped writing spy novels. I'd done that. Yeah. I, you know, I just moved in uh, other directions. So, uh, But I think people would get a, will be very satisfied if they look at yeah. The Brotherhood of the Rose. Yeah, who were the actors in brother, the, the TV version? Robert the, Mitchum yep. uh, was in it. And then uh, 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 Connie Selica played uh, yep. one of the characters. Yep, David right. Morse, who is still acting. Uh, and... Uh, Peter Strauss, yes, uh, who was yeah. at one time considered the king of uh, miniseries. Uh, yeah. It was a great cast, and 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 to show you how things can interconnect, Sterling Siliphant was none other than the executive producer of the miniseries The Brotherhood of the nice. Rose. So not only did he inspire me to be a writer, but 
he and I actually worked professionally together. Oh, that's, that's awesome. David, we really have enjoyed it. Thank you so much for your time today. We sure do appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. David Morrell, not my dad, but uh, in some ways I wish you were. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, I think you're right. It's probably better than your dad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that was, okay. So I made a joke and for him to respond on Twitter, I immediately thought, okay, I mean, he is 76 years old, but I was like, this is cool. There's going to be something good here. And the dude wrote Rambo. So this is, I mean, I just thought that was so good. And, and then some other tweets, you know, he talked to about being, you know, not liking the new movie, which I'm assuming the new movie, that's what it, how strange is it that the first Rambo, they, they lightened it, made the character like, uh, it, it, the victim mm-hmm. and endearing. And then as each Rambo got more and more, it became more vicious than what David wrote. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Like that, that's just that, that I wanted, I was thinking, I asked him that question. I believe now though, if you wrote the, the first Rambo it, it, or the first blood came out, the, the first film, uh, were to come out now, I do believe it would be more like the book. I think people now tend more towards the, the, the non-hero. Yeah. Right. You know, it, there yeah. isn't a hero, and you're just telling a story. I was thinking, like, uh, just recently, I rewatched the, the Departed on the plane, which it, it hasn't stood the test of time as much as I thought it was. When I first saw The Departed with Leo and all the actors and all that stuff, you know, the gangster movie, mm-hmm. I thought it was so amazing. And when I watched it on the plane on uh, this last week, I was like, uh, it, it's still good. But it's not as so much. But in, even in this movie, you don't. That they are walk crossing the lines with who's the hero. I guess it's DiCaprio, but also you know he's hiding and not telling the truth to the bad guys, and you know, and and uh, Jack Nicholson is the main bad guy, but also he's an FBI informant and all that stuff. And so it, it's funny that Sylvester Stallone would come full circle around with Last Blood, and it's the mo- it potentially might be the most vicious, violent. Uh, one of all. Yeah, definitely. So I'm on this whole other level of thinking about that guy and how much I enjoyed that conversation in the sense that I'm telling you, and I said this before, we yeah. are in devastatingly isolated uh, age group uh, echo chambers. It's not oh, left, I, right. Yeah. It's age. You have to be around people that have walked your path ahead of you. Right. How stupid is it that I don't have mentors like him? How ridiculous is that? I agree. Like, why isn't he? Why don't I just? Uh, that's that's. I just. I just need that. I. It feels so automatic when you hear. Wait a minute. You're somebody that thinks like me, or has been ch- trying to do something like that. Like you're trying to do something. It's so right. clear. That's what I feel like. It's where does this lead? And and all people can do that, or they still did, or I, you know, like I feel so isolated. Like, well, there's nobody else right. that does like me. But that's not true. Of course, it's right. not true. Well, well, the the big mistake that everybody makes is the information that he pr- it can provide you isn't old. It's just experience. So we yeah. relate. Oh, he's seventy six. No, so yeah. things are different now. That's not. That has nothing to do with the information that he can give you, which is super valuable, interesting, and entertaining. I mean, gosh, he could. He, I mean, it was just. But I, the old I was so captivated it, the whole time. But they're usually not good at technology. So if we only live in technology, we're isolated right. from the. I mean, in the That's future, true. it won't be as bad of a problem. I don't think. But for but right you want, now, you want to start I've been a, cut a, off. You want to start a seventy people. years old and up only podcast. Well, <laughs> yeah, that would be great if you could. But I'm it just actually saying, would be. I don't know the the format or have a specific idea there, but yes, right. I do want that because yeah. what I'm saying is that's just me resonates with him or goes, oh, that's I'm, I can I can see myself for the rest of my life thinking, oh, I'll be in his study doing that when I'm that. I now I have a model. I didn't, but until right. I mean, 
that I'll think about that forever. It'll be a part. Right. Of the, oh, okay. Because it can't. You, there is that. It's more like that right. feeling. It's not that he knows everything, or I'm really like him, or something. It's not that. It's just it just helps you. It's modeling, and that's what it, I'm, that's what parenting is. And we're so isolated. We move to the city. We live urban. We only hang out with our peers. We only go to our job and and, and the Facebook group we're in. You're supposed right. to be freaking stuck together with babies and old people all the time. That's right. what it's, that's how you're yeah. supposed to develop and learn. I mean, I'm real big on child development, and it's clearly generate. I mean, child development happens because I'm older than the child, and then right. that interplay. So right. I would like to then, continue. I don't believe yeah. in child development ending when you turn 18, and then now right. they say, oh, 25, do you? No, you idiot. Your whole life right. is development. It's human development, not child development. And part of it is older people that, you know, it just seems so obvious. And I mean, it just highlights what, you know, some things we're doing wrong that they don't know much solution for. But I, no, I, really I think it. you're right. Well, it's just a, it, I mean, people just get too caught up in the idea of, you're right, that we're in a technological age and things are moving faster and you can't take some of the life lessons of other people. And that's just a mistake. It's a huge yeah. mistake. Everything he was talking about, even that's what I'm saying. That's why I, after uh, Rambo is so, the story of Rambo, the book is, very relevant to today and what it means mm -hmm. to be uh, uh, power and uh, law enforcement and all of those things can be very Everything. valuable today and how it's depicted and what it means to be free and not be free and the, the stories. And I mean, that's just all of that. But I think that most of the learning happens though. And that's kind of what I think about is this podcast. And it reinforces that is you learn just having dinner with people, hanging out with people. Not, yeah. I don't want to really want to take his class or his master class video course on how to write a book. I mean, get not that. I just want to right. have supper every night with the person that is also way interested in how Frank Sinatra right. uses a microphone and what to do, what breaths right. indicate and mean in recordings. Holy shit. I know. There's a 76-year-old man that thinks like that and has been thinking about it and writing about it. Right. Holy shit. You know, <laughs> I know, I agree. I just want to talk informally about that, and that's how it works. I don't know. That's just me, though. All right. Well, I'll tell you what isn't just you, Matt, because it's me, too, and, and, and a bunch of people, actually. It's old uh, the BC Club. The BC oh, Club. Oh, that's is, everybody. That's universal. Yeah. I mean, that's we have some older folks in the BC Club, by the way, who are very valuable. And I don't want to, I won't say their names just because I don't want be, <laughs> I don't want them to think I'm talking about them. But there's some older, but you know who you are, and you're uh, older, you older ladies and, and gentlemen in the uh, BC Club are very valuable. And I actually do think there is something to be said about their life experience being valuable. I'm, I do believe as I'm getting older, parts of my life are becoming more valuable. To other people, like where I, where it used to be more, you know, the more I can think about, oh, I've experienced this and pass that on, not in a I'm preaching to you and teaching you, but just like how we just talked with David. David's just talking. He, he didn't he didn't give any advice to me or much or anything. He's just saying, hey, this is what I did and this is what you should do. And uh, this or this is what is possible. This, how this, this is how this works. This is how that right. works is what I hear. Right. So that. But anyway, back to the BC Club. Uh it is the reason you're listening to this podcast is one the almost the main reason is well first of all Matt and I are super smart and intelligent and we have all kinds of people Extremely. on the podcast yeah, yeah but also uh, the BC Club it is a way to support what you are hearing right now and if you're what you're hearing you're enjoying well, well if you're still listening it? at this point let's get let's be honest that's true yeah well, let's be honest still if you're still here 
you got a problem if you're not pay, if you're not if you don't pay a couple bucks. Here. There's something come really on. wrong with you if you come on the BC Club and so, you're listening to my voice right so now. So you get uh, extra podcasts. Uh, we're we're doing all kinds of things like the BC Con. Uh, we've got some other stuff in the works that uh, will be coming in the future. So there's a lot going on. If you like this podcast, and then help us make it. We sure would appreciate it. It really does help a lot. And I want to uh, give a couple of names here um, of some of the people in the BC Club. All right. So we have uh, Milford Reed Sheffer. I'm giving them an old name to start with. Okay. Is that okay with you? You're adding a name. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Bertha Kenneth Hahn. <laughs> See if you can tell what the old name is I'm adding. Okay. Edna Lauren Sanborn. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I got. I feel like I only got women's names here. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to do this one with uh, uh, Sandberg. I'm sorry. Uh, Gertrude Jason Slagle. <laughs> and Harold Patrick Dye. You got it. They are in the BC Club. Thank you, folks. That's your old name. Sandborn and a yeah. Sandberg consecutively. Oh yeah. Uh, oh, it was Lauren Sandborn, Lauren Sandborn and Michael, Michael Sandberg. Sandberg. Thank wow. you guys both. I wonder if they're from the same place in the world, but they just their names got changed a little bit. Anyway, all right, folks, go tell a, an older person you love them and just give them a listen instead of being such a young asshole, ageist you, young you, asshole. Yeah, you, now I'm just setting shit. this up because please listen to me when I'm older. Yeah, dear God. Just, uh, you know. just sit beside me at the bench Please and let just me let me talk. Stuff when I get just let me talk. Maybe bring a piece of candy, but let me talk. I'll be hanging out by the cooler at the gas station, leaning against a, yeah. uh, or something outside of yeah. a gas station, or possibly oh, yeah. at a table at McDonald's, or possibly on the tee box of a golf course. Not playing, yeah. really. Just waiting around while other people tee off. Talking. That's where I'll, I'll be. I'll be at a Hardee's with my uh, right. senior discount coffee, and I just want you to come over, say, hey, I'd love to listen, and just hand me a Worthers. <laughs> hand me exactly. a one Worthers, and I'll be good. Yeah, exactly. All right. That's what I need. All right. See y'all later. <laughs>